didn't think of when I say the word God. What comes into your mind when you hear the name God? Depending upon who you are and where you're from, you may think of Allah. You may think of Buddha. You may think of some other idea of a being of some sort who dwells in a never, never world of spiritual dimensions not seen or perceived by human eyes. You might think of Vishnu or Dagon. But if you're in the so-called Christian world of professing Christianity, of Roman Catholicism and American Protestantism, you think of a divinized father figure, generally, portrayed as he is on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel as being a man with a weightlifter's body, but with a long white beard and white hair, who seems to be reaching out, barely but not quite touching the finger of another nearly naked man, who is supposed to be Adam, and that is the depiction of Michelangelo, the creation. Most people, when you say the name God, automatically think of God the Father. They think of a being, probably white-haired, white-bearded, shining like the sun, sitting on a throne. They don't have a clear-cut idea of God, but there's some kind of a concept. When you get on your knees and pray in private, to whom are you praying? What do you see in your mind's eye? Most of us, I think, see nothing, really. Do we? I don't think we really see a face because we can't imagine what the face would look like. We don't see a body because we don't know whether to imagine the body as being clothed or unclothed. We don't see hands and arms and feet and legs and eyes and torso and lips and teeth and noses and ears and hairline, as you do when you meet and greet each other. We just have a vague idea that there is a, a being of some sort, and we call him God. And most people think of God as God the Father. Now, if I say Christ, then you think automatically of Christ the Son. And here, coming into your mind is something that almost immediately leaps into your consciousness as a result of all of your upbringing all of the pictures you've seen in illustrated Bibles, in Bible bookstores, the pictures that you can see in people's homes, the pictures you see in religious magazines of this proverbial long-haired Jesus with the rather elongated face with the aquiline nose and the thin lips and the long brown flowing locks with the white robe. And in spite of the fact that you have been taught, if you have really read and studied and looked into the Word of God, if you've read some of our literature, my book on the real Jesus, if you've read other literature that talks about the fact that Jesus was a Jew, that he was not handsome, he was not attractive, there was no comeliness, that when we see him we should desire him, it says in the book of Isaiah, that you perhaps have abandoned that vision of Jesus, but probably not altogether. Some of it is residual in your mind, some of it is somehow still there. So when you think of Jesus, it's almost automatic that you think of the proverbial Protestant and Catholic Jesus. When you go into some of the big cathedrals, especially the Catholic cathedrals, you will see representations of some of these deities. You will see statuary, but primarily in the Roman Catholic Church you will see the statuary that shows a virginal woman, sometimes as in La Pietà. You will see the dead body, it's in Firenze or Florence, as they say in our language, over in Italy, of a dying or a dead Jesus in marble in the arms of his mother, Mary. 
And people have these idols or the icons or the pictures so that they can get an idea, allegedly, of what this divine family, this divine being, the Father and the Son, look like. But now when you come to the Holy Spirit, what comes into your mind? How do you grasp that in your mind? Even in the Roman Catholic Church, there is no representation of the Holy Spirit. Oh, here and there, there are statues that are tripartite. There are emblems and symbols that are triune. There are ideas about a triumvirate, about a so-called trinity, and that God is supposed to be three in one, or one God in three persons, but then the Trinitarians shy back from saying, yes, but we don't really mean persons in the way that you and I mean persons, talking about a person because you can't really... Unfortunately, the leadership of the Worldwide Church of God has adopted the doctrine of the Trinity. My father, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, would be absolutely appalled. He might even drop dead of a heart attack if he were to come back and to see some of the incredible doctrinal heresies being promulgated by the leadership of that church, denying the efficacy of the stripes on the back of Jesus Christ of Nazareth for our healing, which they did at least three, three and a half years ago, saying they are already be born, being born again, they're already born again, absolutely denying, saying nothing at all about the identity of the United States and the British Commonwealth of Nations in prophecy backing way away from biblical prophecy and the prophetic scenario of what's to happen to the United States, and then, heresy of all heresies, adopting the idea, the doctrine of the Trinity, which they have stated in their own publications, which they state in their own booklets, which they have affirmed under the signature of their top leadership in letters from their letter-answering department and from the so-called Pastor General himself. Why do we think that scholars who lived in the second and third centuries are more intelligent than we are? Were people who lived in the second and third centuries more intelligent than modern people in America and Britain and elsewhere when it comes to electronics? Well, they didn't even know about electronics, did they? What about physics, chemistry, biology, any of the sciences? Were they more intelligent? Were they more erudite? Were they more capable of coming up with really broad concepts? Were they the intelligentsia, the only people who could really understand the mystery of who and what is God? But they, you see, locked it in place. A man named Anastasius, and that creed that he came up with, which was under much dispute in the church scattered all over the eastern Mediterranean world in the early part of the third century after Jesus Christ's resurrection, became the controversy that led toward the Council of Nicaea, at which time a so-called converted sun worshiper, who wasn't really converted because he had a solar symbol on one side of his coins and a Jesus on the other, named Constantine, who was really a political expedient and who was actually politicizing religion so that the masses of the pagans of all of the nations that had been swallowed up by Rome, pagan Rome, could be brought into the so-called Christian church and he could meld the two into one religion. And so they would adapt here and there. They would dress up paganism in a Christian garb and call it Christianity. They would adapt 
pagan customs, pagan dates, pagan symbolism, pagan superstitions, and call them Christian. They adopted Easter. They adopted the Mass of Christ, Christmas. They established a date for Easter on that very same conference or council, a council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. So the Athanasian Creed that tries to define this thing, this being, this something called a triumvirate or a triune god or the trinity was locked in place and was adopted by the leader of the so-called Holy Roman Empire, Constantine, in 325 A.D. Just how smart were those men, those clerics? Now, what did they have to go on? Well, they had the documents called the Septuagint. They had the various codices, a few of them that were in their hands, that have come into the hands of some of the great museums, like the British Museum, the Louvre, the Vaticanus, and so on, Alexandrinus, portions of Aphromai, and many other manuscripts. So, in effect, they had the very same thing in their hands that we have in ours. They had the Bible. They had the Old Testament, and they had many of the letters that were being written by men during the time in the first century after Jesus Christ up until about 92, 93 A.D. when John died, perhaps on the island Patmos or maybe over on the Anatolian Peninsula. And they could read and study what these men had said, what they had written. And they came up with a certain idea, and it was imposed upon the people back during that day. Many of them rejected it. There were others called Arius and other early teachers that rejected the idea of the Trinity. But the Trinity was imposed upon the Church. And for all of these generations and centuries and centuries and centuries, it has been imposed upon the Church. And the Roman Catholic Church still teaches it. It is the hallmark, it seems to be the foundational, fundamental, identifying doctrine that makes you, quote, unquote, a Christian. Isn't that enormous? Isn't that unbelievable? You can worship Jesus Christ, you can believe in God the Father and Christ the Son, you can believe that you are saved by faith and by grace, by unmerited pardon, you can accept Christ as your Savior, you can undergo baptism, you can pray to God the Father as Christ said you should. When you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And you can be labeled something other than Christian by the so-called mainstream Protestant evangelicals and Roman Catholic priests in this country, the United States of America. When we attempted to buy time on the network that is operated and owned by a man that tried to run for president, Pat Robertson, we were informed by his program director, oh no, no, we, we could not allow Garner Ted Armstrong's program on our network of stations, on our cable systems, because you see, we are the Christian broadcasting network, CBN. I wanted to get that in writing. No, they wouldn't give it to us in writing, and the man tried to back away. He didn't want to say that again. But he had plainly made it clear that they say that we, I, am not Christian because I do not accept the doctrine of the Trinity. Will you turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts? We are observing a birthday today. The birthday of the true Church of God, which Jesus Christ of Nazareth said that he would build. He had promised time and again that another comforter, a paraclete, an intercessor, would come and that he would send the Holy Spirit from heaven 
after he ascended to the right hand of God the Father following his resurrection. He had commanded them to wait in Jerusalem until they'd be imbued with power from on high. And we're going to take a look at this and see exactly what it was that occurred. He had said in chapter 1 and verse 8, You shall receive power, after that the Holy Spirit. The King James English translates it ghost. What a terrible, terrible, not just unfortunate, but I think ridiculous and virtually deliberate mistranslation. They believed in ghosts, and so you think of a hooded wraith, you think of a hooded specter, you think of a, of a haunt or a spook, and how absolutely obscenely heretical for the translators during this time, back in the 1600s, 1611, what do they know from anything about anything that we can know today? And they rendered that Greek word pneuma, which you will recognize in pneumatic or pneumonia, as being spirit, and that Greek word they rendered, instead of spirit, which it should have read, ghost. And to this day, you've got churches that spin off from that idea. They call themselves the Holy Ghost people, and the Holy Rollers, and the Holy Ghost, and you've got to get the Holy Ghost, and they talk about it that way, which is a ridiculous mistranslation, a misnomer, a word that shouldn't even appear in the Word of God at all. After that, the Holy Spirit is come upon you. Question, as we read through the divinely inspired Word of God, and we're going to tremble before it, we're going to obey what Isaiah says when he says, To this man will I look, to him it is poured of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. This is the Word of God. It's not Garner Ted 1.14. It's Acts. It is the book of the deeds and the acts of the apostles, 1.14, and it says, After that the Holy Spirit is come upon you. Do you know of a scripture from Genesis to Revelation where it talks about the Father coming upon you, or Christ coming upon you? You know of no such scripture. That language is never used in connection with the Father or with Jesus Christ. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And then they saw him assumed into heaven. They did wait there. And on chapter 2, verse 1, we read, When the day of Pentecost, the word Pentecost merely means 50th, they were to count from the morrow after the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread, 50 days, and to come to that final 50th day, there were seven sevens or seven Sabbaths, and the following day would always be a Sunday, and they were to observe the Feast of Pentecost. It merely meant the 50th day. The idea it should be on seven six is utterly ridiculous. Why would they count? God would simply have said the month and the date of the month, seven six, the same way he did the 15th day of the seventh month and all the other holy days. But we have complete booklets and articles on that subject for those who want to argue about holy places and holy time. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, where were the disciples of Jesus Christ after his resurrection? after his many appearances to them, and after they had watched him go into heaven. They were observing an annual holy day, an annual Sabbath of God, which was counted up to the fiftieth day from the weekly Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread. Why? 
Because on that day, the high priest went out into the fields in the early barley harvest, and he took a hand scythe, and he cut out one armload of barley, and he bound it together in a sheaf, and he took it and he waved it before God in a ceremony. That pictured Jesus Christ as the first of the first fruits. The barley harvest was the first harvest. And the very first sheaf cut out from it was the first of the first harvest in the spring. It showed it already severed from the earth, not yet accepted of God. So it showed Christ cut off from humanity, cut off from his own kind, in the arms of the high priest as if an intermediary, intercessor, showing its offering to God, but not yet accepted of God. The wave sheaf offering was merely a type a foretaste or a picture of the risen Jesus Christ who was going to ascend to heaven as the very first begotten from the grave, as the first of the first fruits. And since Christ had promised that the Holy Spirit would come exactly fifty days later, that promise was fulfilled. And they were all with one accord in one place. There are many people who will argue until there are purple spots in the face that you don't need to be observing the day of Pentecost, the annual holy days. But that was all nailed to the cross. Well, what was nailed to the cross? And it wasn't the cross anyway, but an upright stake, an upright pail with perhaps a little sign above it. Jesus Christ was nailed to the stake. Not some chart, not a document, not some Ten Commandments, not God's commands or God's laws, but Christ. He was nailed to the stake. When? Well, fifty-some days before this event then everything that was supposed to cease at the time of the crucifixion of Christ was over and gone. And this is a New Testament, new, brand new church ritual, if you will, an observance of God's church, which happened a month and ten days plus after Jesus Christ had risen to heaven. And it is an annual holy day, and they are observing it. And they're there in one place with one accord. And suddenly, it wasn't worked up gradually. It did not come from human throats or human glottises or human tongues or mouths or lungs. It came suddenly, shockingly, unexpectedly, just like that lightning bolt that knocked the lights out yesterday. Suddenly, they didn't expect it. They didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what was coming, what it would look like, what it would sound like, but suddenly... There came a sound from heaven. It didn't come from the earth. It didn't come from the voices of men. It came from heaven. As of a rushing, mighty wind. Ever heard a tornado go by nearby, you folks that live in Kansas? Some of you probably have. I heard one. I was hanging on to the roots of a tree, and I was down at the base of that tree, and it was a real big tree. And that tree was just groaning as that tornado went around and took some of the tops off, just barely across a an arm of a lake right next to me. There weren't any railroad tracks right across that lake, but I heard a freight train go by. That's what it sounded like, like a roaring freight train going by. And when that wind reversed, it sunk that boat. The waves were so big, it splashed over the transom, filled the boat, made it slide down in the water, and it was down there in the water. We had to get it, drag it up, and bail it out. I heard a tornado go by, only a few hundred yards away. Those winds were incredible. They were breaking the tops of trees and uprooting trees and hurling debris through the air. 
That's what they sounded like. It sounded like a tornado. It sounded like a roaring, powerful wind that they heard. And it filled all the house. I mean, it was just shaking the room where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them, look at the margin. I have a little three by mine in my Cambridge, King James English Bible. And it says, distributed, equally distributed. The idea that it was cloven is, again, an obscene, ridiculous interpretation. If you look at the diaglot, the Westcott and Hort, Thayer's and some of the lexicons, and it is equally distributed or equally divided. Now, a tongue of flame, we speak of fire as licking at the embers. We speak of the fire as having tongues of flame. And I suppose because it looks like a tongue, there can be the tongue of a wagon, there can be the tongue of the organ of speech in your mouth, but there can also be the tongue meaning the language that you speak with that organ in your mouth, the Spanish tongue, the English tongue, etc. And it's saying here, there appeared unto them equally distributed flickering flames like tongues of fire. And it was sitting upon or resting upon the heads of all twelve of them, including Matthias, who had replaced Judas Iscariot, who was now dead. So here were twelve men standing there in full view of perhaps five to seven to ten thousand people, because about three thousand of them became converted as a result of the preaching of the apostles. Thousands of people, and here were these people up there perhaps in a great huge area that we would call a pavilion with a very high ceiling and a huge colonnaded porch-like building. Hearing this mighty roaring wind, what an incredible experience, and then seeing these men all of a sudden with their hair on fire, but nothing burning. They saw fire. Talk about a tension getter. Talk about something that makes you look and pay attention. Wow, look at there. His hair's on fire, but it's not burning. And then the man begins to speak. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Is there any scripture in the Bible that says they were all filled with God? They were all filled with the Father. They were all filled with Christ. What is filled? A vessel? A jug, a bottle, a, a can, a box, a container is filled. You fill something full. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages. The Greek word glossa merely means another language. Here's the proof in the context. As the Spirit gave them utterance, inspired them, and allowed them to speak. Now. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace is in all churches of the saints. It says that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And it says in Paul's description of the way church services were to be conducted, let the prophets speak one after the other, at the most two or three, and then let the first hold his peace, if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by. But all things may be done decently and in order. You nor I could understand a word if four or five other ministers joined me up here, put on a peanut microphone, stood up here, and all started preaching at the same time. You would be utterly confused. And that isn't what happened. They spoke one at a time. Each one of them had a great deal to say and a great deal to add. And like iron sharpening iron, one was inspired by what the other one said. They began to speak with other languages. 
And there, dwelling in Jerusalem, were Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven, the known world. And when this was noised abroad, now they were speaking, and the crowd began to grow. There were people that heard part of it and ran out in the street and said, Guess what's happening? They're standing in there. Andrew's got his head afire, but his hair isn't burning up. And they were running all over the place, and the crowd began to grow and grow and grow as this was noised abroad. A crowd was gathered, and they were confounded because every man, and they spoke all different kinds of languages, when they made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at the time of the annual holy days, they came from Dacia and Thracia and Bithynia and Cappadocia, from Alexandria and Egypt. They came from the Peloponnesus in Greece. They came from Asia Minor. They came from all over the known world, and they spoke every kind of dialect and tongue, the Arabic, the Samaritan tongues, some of the other Greek and the Roman tongues. They spoke every language you can imagine. It would be like having Greeks and Italians and Spaniards and Portuguese and Americans and Germans and Japanese and Chinese and Indians from India all together, all of them hearing clearly a man standing there speaking, so far as he knew, in his own language. But by a divine miracle, as the words and the sound went out, the ear heard in the language that was the native tongue of the person visiting in Jerusalem. A fabulous miracle of both the speaking and the hearing. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak, and they were all amazed. Verse 7, saying one to another, Behold, are not these which speak Galileans? They should be speaking a Galilean tongue. And how do we hear every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? And it shows that they were from Parthia, Media, Elamites, and dwellers in Mesopotamia, that means the land between the rivers up in what is present-day Iraq, and in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia in Egypt, all parts of Libya around Cyrene, that's the Cyrenaican peninsula that goes way up there in the area of Tripoli and some of the parts that were fought over in World War II. Strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, from Arabia, Saudi Arabia, from the island of Crete, Cretia, we do hear them speak in our tongues, our native languages, the wonderful works of God. And those works of God we see in Peter's message have to do with Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, and his resurrection. And they were all amazed. And they were in doubt. They were saying, what is the meaning of all of this? Others were mocking and saying they ought to be drunk. But the wine shops weren't open. There was no way they could be drunk on new wine or old wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all of you that dwell in Jerusalem, be it known unto you and hearken to my words. These are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it's about the third hour of the day. The shops were closed. It was way too early. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In Joel, the second chapter, you can read of that event. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit. Now, wait a minute. Saith who? Saith Theos. The Greek word is Theos. Theos is the New Testament Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is the Hebrew word that means more than one, just like Theos can mean more than one, that is translated into several different languages down through history, Greek, down into Latin, finally into the old High German and the early Scandinavian, Dutch, and Germanic languages, where it was spoken of as Gott. 
Our English word God comes from an old High German word which is now pronounced Gott. G O umlaut T T. Gott. Before that it was good, G U D, as in Norway, some of the Scandinavian tongues. Or it came from an early Aryan root, Gu, G H E U, which is something which is poured out. It means to pour out as in two possible meanings, either as a libation in terms of a sacrificial offering or as molten metal into a mold. If you look at the origin of the English word God, it actually has pagan roots and goes back to Guth, which is actually the bull, which was an old German word for Taurus the bull, which is nothing more than Nimrod. And believe it or not, since I cannot say one word out of my mouth by clicking my lips together and my teeth together and moving my tongue and my, and my uh, glottis and epiglottis and all the rest of the voice apparatus, I cannot say one word to you that is holy. Every word that is coming out of my mouth is pure pagan in its origin and its sounds. God says that in his kingdom he is going to give us a new language and Paul said that he heard words that are not permissible for a man to hear. He is going to give us, he says in God's word, a pure language and a new name. There is nothing about this world that is pleasing to God in our languages. You can't say a word whether it's in corrupted Aramaic Hebrew, whether it is El, El Shaddai, Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Zidkenu, whether it's Yahweh Rufikah, whether it is Eloah, whether it is Allah, which is a takeoff from Eloah in the Arabic tongue, and say that that is holier than saying God or our Father. If you want to say the sovereign deity, that will be just as acceptable, because the Father in heaven knows exactly who you are addressing. But look what this scripture says, the spirit of the Father. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Whose spirit? The Father's spirit. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit. So the Father has a spirit. Does anybody deny that? The Father has a spirit. He is able to pour out of his spirit. Interesting. Now, dare we try to understand God apart from what he wants us to know about him? Simple question. You think you can figure him out with your brain? You think you can figure how God made the spoonbill, which walks along the shallow waters in the Gulf, swishing its bill from side to side like that? And scientists had not discovered until 1993 why the spoonbill does that. They finally found out that the spoonbill has a shape on its funny-looking paddle-shaped bill that is not unlike the bottom of an aircraft wing, and that as it goes along above the sandy, shallow floor of the gulf at the shore, it is actually creating vortices in the water in the same way that the wingtips of a 747 create vortices. And that that water is then roiling and picking up little tiny microorganisms and holding them suspended in the water 
As the spoonbill's bill comes back, it is capturing them, and it's equipped with little tiny hair-like appurtenances on the inside of its bill, and it is siphoning off, draining off the water, and just like a baleen whale, causing little microorganisms to stick inside of its bill. Now, the first time that a wading bird ever decided, I know, I don't want to eat minnows, I don't want to eat little crabs and crustacea, I don't want to eat all this other food lying here. What I want to do is to eat little things I can't even see. This is evolution in motion. I can't even see it, but I know it's there. Now, I've got this perfectly straight beak, and so far I've been spearing fish with it. been working great. I love fish. But I would rather eat something I can't even see, so I'm going to start swishing it from side to side. So it swished its bill from side to side, side to side, side. No vortices. No roiling of the water. Its bill was not equipped because it didn't have a great big wide paddle bill with all the little hair-like appurtenances in it to siphon out and to actually screen and to strain from the water the little microorganisms. And so, and so this straight-billed pre-proto-spoonbill starved to death and died. And he couldn't pass on to his progeny an ever wider bill because if he didn't get his first meal right then before he started losing weight, he was going to die. And if he gave up on that and said, this is foolish, I'm going to go on eating minnows, then he never did evolve into a spoonbill, so there aren't any spoonbills. Right? You think you can reach out with your brain and you can figure out how God designed that? Do you think you can figure out how God designed quartz that actually has as its chemical composition H2O in it? Did you know there's water in quartz? you know that the chemical formula for quartz includes water? Can you figure out which came first, the chrysalis or the butterfly or the caterpillar? Can you figure out why a monarch butterfly, misnamed because somebody used to say it's a flutterby, will actually migrate all the way from Mexico to Northern California in the Redwoods over a thousand five hundred miles in order to mate. As God said to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Can you understand Leviathan, a great huge whale? Why should the biggest creature known to man, so big he couldn't even begin to fit in this room, where a couple of elephants and men could fit on its back a great blue whale, eat the smallest creatures in the sea. Doesn't make sense. It ought to be feeding on great big sharks and big killer whales, shouldn't it? But instead, it's got what's called baleen, and they are like sieves or like strainers, and they hang down, and it swims, and it gets all the crustacea called krill and microorganisms called plankton, and it eats tons of that stuff a day, this huge, great, sometimes 80, 100, 120 feet long, weighing up to 100 and some odd tons and more, great blue whale. Can we figure that out? Can we, with a yellow pad and a bunch of pencils, figure out God, apart from what he reveals to us? Now, are we to be called unchristian, and are we to be persecuted? And are we to be, sometime in the future, put to death because we wish to worship the Creator God that gives us every breath of air we breathe only in the best way we can through the Word of God that He reveals to us? And that we say, no, we in this modern generation, with the same documents, 
with the same original manuscripts, with the same information available to us that was available to all the prelates and the clerics who were meeting at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. when they believed in spontaneous generation of flies because they didn't know flies laid eggs on maggots. And it wasn't until many, many years later that they didn't know that watermelon seeds turned into bugs. And they were so stupid in so many ways. And we want to say that they had it all figured out and we're going to stick with what they taught in 325 A.D.? Do you know that the time is going to come when people are going to say, you're not even Christian if you don't accept the Trinity? And how sad it is that the parent church, in order to avoid standing out among the mainstream, in order to abandon its poignancy, in order to get rid of its cutting edge, in order to abandon its uniqueness, in order to draw back from its commission and its message, is leaping into the arms of the mainstream evangelical fold and adopting doctrines like the Trinity and denying that you can ever become a member of God's family. They're saying, well, we used to teach that, but we don't teach it anymore. How sad that a light has gone out in Pasadena, California. How sad. How tragic. Now, who or what is the Holy Spirit? We can read all the rest of this. I won't do that. But here are some very important verses. Verse 33 in the message that Peter gave. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, obviously Jesus Christ, and having received of the Father, who? Jesus Christ. Was he a person? Yes. I have explained that in another sermon. You can have the sermon tape on it about the Trinity, who, what is God, and who, what was Jesus Christ, and where it says that he is the exact impress and the exact counterpart of the Father's person. Being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this. Oh, we've received some hateful mail saying, well, they refer to the Spirit as this. When the Bible speaks of the Spirit as he or him, no, it doesn't. Not always. Sometimes it speaks of it as it or this. And here it is in front of you, in the Word of God. Who shed it forth? Christ. What did he shed forth? The Spirit of the Father. How can he do that? Is this talking about three separate persons? Three facades, three facets, three faces in some kind of a blob composed of spirit that is called God? Is that what we're supposed to believe? No, you see, what you're supposed to believe is mystery. Mystery. Babylon the Great. Confusion. That's what you're supposed to believe. That way you can follow along after a man with long robes doing this, making funny signs with his hands. He may as well do that. It doesn't make any difference either way. Goodbye, cruel world. It wouldn't make any, any difference at all. Cut a hole in the back of your hair. Some of you poor guys did it naturally without having to use it. And I'm about to. I'm about to join you. Wear a robe. Turn your collar on backward. Make funny signs. Tinkle a bell. Wave a feather. Sprinkle salt. Light a candle. Let's turn to John, the 14th chapter and verse 9. John 14 and verse 9. Jesus said, 
Have I been so long with you, and you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Christ is talking. He's on the earth. He is a person. He is a member of the very divine family of God, the first fruits of the earth, and he's talking about his Father. The Father and the Son is not a figment of the imagination of some Protestant evangelical who said it would be nice to use a familial relationship as an analogy or the family as a type to help us understand the divine family in heaven above. It is God's revelation to us. If God chooses to reveal himself to me as a father capable of begetting a son, and that son can walk about on this earth, and God can raise him from the stone-cold, lifeless dead and take him back to his side and give him all power in the universe and say that he is coming back to this earth to rule it with a rod of iron, I'm satisfied. I don't need to go beyond what God would like to let me know about himself since I know he can take my breath at the very next instant since I know he can stop my heart at the very next instant, since I know that he can simply catch me away as if I were never here at the very next instant, and gives me every beat of my heart and every breath of air that I breathe, who am I to tread into the divine realm of unrevealed knowledge which is too far beyond me? I cannot obtain to it. I cannot understand all eternity. I cannot understand forever and ever and ever. I cannot understand a limitless universe. I cannot understand time without end. So I am happy. I am satisfied. If God reveals himself to me as he chooses to reveal himself, I am more than satisfied. I am joyful. I am happy. I am ecstatic. I am overwhelmed. And as we will see very quickly, so should we all be. The word he, when he refers to the comforter, he says another comforter is going to come. In, let me see if I can put my eye on the word. We know that in several cases Jesus Christ talked to the other comforter and he said, when he is come, he will testify of me. Verse 26, the, the comforter, verse 26 of the same chapter, John 14 which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Notice that. The Holy Spirit would be sent by the Father, but sent in the name of the Son. He shall teach you all things. Now, this is one of the problems for many of the Protestants, Catholics, because it uses the word he. In Hebrew, the word he is hi, H-I-Y. It's a primary root, a primary word. It merely means a third person pronoun. It can be singular, or it can be he, she, or it. It can also mean the same, or that one. It can be they, or this, this thing, or those, or those who, or this who, or he who, or she who. It can be used in speech as that third person pronoun. In Greek, it is autos, A-U-T-O-S. We use the word auto, meaning self, and it is like automatic. It is autos, A-U-T-O-S. It's a reflexive pronoun. It means self. It's used alone or in comparison of the third person in, gra in grammar. Her, itself, one, the other, 
thine own, the same, him, myself, thyself, into, of, on, with, they, these things, those, together, very, or even which. And is translated in all those ways in the New Testament. So what we learn by this is that there is nothing whatsoever in the word itself, out of the original Hebrew and the Greek languages, that suggests anything other than the common pronoun. It isn't intended to take a two-letter word and to build a doctrine around it that flies in the face of hundreds of scriptural references in the Word of God. It can be itself, it, that one, that thing, or the same. And so is used in the Word of God. The truth of God is not learned in striving about words, and the Bible absolutely tells us don't do that. It talks about people coming with doctrines, and there'll be a lot of striving about words. And it seems like everybody that goes to the Bible bookstore and buys himself an exhaustive concordance wants to strive about words. And they just lose sight of the truth. They're standing so close to the forest they can't see the trees because they're right up against the trunk of just one of them, and they're looking at it and straining at it like the drunk was walking along and banged into a tree about this big around. And he grabbed a hold of it, and he walked around and around and around, just bruising his nose until his nose was bloody, and he says, lost, lost again in an impenetrable forest. That's the way some of these religious guys are. They're lost in an impenetrable forest because they're standing with their face plastered against a tree like a little pronoun. And they don't know and they don't understand. Now, it is axiomatic that Athenian cab drivers are not the best biblical scholars. And they speak a lot better Greek than any of the people that I have known and worked among for the last 40 some odd years. Athenian cab drivers don't know it all. I mean, just because you speak Greek, look at the Greek Orthodox Church. How right are they? Does the Word of God say, to him that speaketh Greek and Hebrew, I will reveal myself? Does the Word of God say, only those who know Greek and Hebrew shall enter the kingdom of God? No, it does not. We can avail ourselves of the hundreds and the thousands of lives of great scholars who can tell us all the little nuances and shadings and the meanings of words in all kinds of different languages. Now, the spiritual analogies, and there are many of them in the Word of God, let's go through them right quickly about the Holy Spirit, are first of all, water. John 3 and verse 5. I'll turn back to that briefly. And we know that Jesus said to the Samaritan woman by the well, when he was asked, when she asked him about water, he said, give me a drink of water. And he said, if you knew who it was who were speaking to you, that you could receive living water. And he said, out of his belly, if he is of God, shall flow rivers of living water. And we know that he likened the Holy Spirit unto water. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In John 7, 37 and 39, John 7, 37 and 39, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit. So the Spirit of God is something that flows like rivers, rivulets, creeks of living, life-giving, like tinkling brooks, 
of living water. That is God's analogy, not mine. The Holy Spirit is something which flows. What does a creek do? It gives life to everything in it and on its banks. It is in rapid motion. It is water, a part of the three spheres of all of creation. The lithosphere, the bathosphere, and the atmosphere. And it is made up of the very same substances that are found in the air that we are breathing. There are all sorts of gases, many of them very, very rare. But mostly it is oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen and all kinds of other gases that are there. And it gives us life when we drink it, and we cannot live without it. Ninety-some percent of your body is water. We could be reduced down in the solids in our body, a little box about that big. And allegedly, with the metals and all the rest, except for cadmium and lead that we've been ingesting in the last several years, we're worth maybe about 98 cents. In the case of Saddam Hussein, less than two cents. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So there are many analogies. The washing of the water by the Word, where God uses water as a type of the Holy Spirit. The waters of baptism that wash away our sins as a type of God's Holy Spirit. Wind, used in John 3 and verse 8. We'll go back to that. We were there where Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. John 3 and verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it will, where it listeth, and you can hear the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it cometh, where it comes from, or whither it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Wind was used, the mighty rushing wind on the day of Pentecost, wasn't it? And they heard that roaring wind. Wind was used time and again in the Bible in great miracles when God blew the waters of the Red Sea apart and allowed the Israelites to walk through dry shot. It was a powerful wind from the eternal. And wind, again, is invisible. But you can hear it. It has power. It has energy. But you cannot see it. And God's Word uses wind as an analogy of His Spirit. Fire is used. First Corinthians, the third chapter, about the fiery trial. It will burn up the three different parts that are flammable and the three that are inflammable. And they have changed that word in the last 20 or 30 years, meaning not Flammable. They used to say uninflammable, which was wrong, English language, but those which are not burnable, meaning gold, silver, and precious stones, survive the fire. And 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the day of fiery trial, which will try every man's work of what sort it is. Fire is used continually of God to exert and to show His power. It was used at the time of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is going to be used in Gehenna fire. It is the power of God that God can utilize. And what is fire? Anybody know? No, you don't. You don't have the faintest idea. All you know is it is supposed to be, quote, the combustion, meaning the burning, of some substance together when it's applied with a certain amount of heat that causes it to reach its so-called flash point, which is very low in the case of stubble or certain noxious gases and the like, and very, very high with regard to rocks and metals. And at that point in time, it's going to catch fire. And we're going to be able, by applying heat, to change the chemical nature of those things that exist in matter. And God has used fire continually to illustrate the power of the Holy Spirit. And what was it that appeared after they heard the wind, an analogy of God's Spirit? And what they saw, because they couldn't see the wind, was what? Fire. Flaming crowns of flame on the top of the heads of the apostles. 
So God's Word shows that fire is a type. He calls His ministers flames of fire. He speaks of God in Hebrews 12:29 as a consuming fire. He spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. He used fire to burn up the altar at the prayer of Elijah and to confound the prophets of Baal. It shows God's power to purify. It shows God's power to destroy sin. God is a spirit, it says. God's own word tells us God is a spirit, and they who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Over in the fourth chapter of the book of John, you worship, you know not what, he said in verse 22. But we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit. The word in can mean through. Through the vehicle of, through the power of, through the conduit of, the spirit. And shall worship him in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So God is a spirit. And we've also read and already proved it and seen scriptures in God's Word that God the Father has a spirit. God the Father has a spirit. We've seen, and we've seen other examples, I can give you a couple of them, Romans 8 9, right quickly, that Jesus Christ has a spirit. Romans 8 and verse 9. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Christ has a spirit. Christ has been made once again into divine, holy spirit and is at the right hand of God. And if we can use the word composed and don't fear that because it's merely a word that helps us understand that God is in one place at a time and that Christ is in one place at a time. Though he can project his mind and his power away from him in all directions at once as he chooses, he nevertheless remains in one place at one time. The throne of God was transported about the universe. Ezekiel saw it in the first chapter of Ezekiel is conveyed about by cherubim. And again in the tenth chapter of Ezekiel, and sitting upon a translucency of glass over the heads of great imposing creatures called cherubim was one, quote, like unto the Son of Man, who said, You go and you say to them, Thus saith the Lord. It's obvious Ezekiel was permitted a vision of the very throne of God, the one that became Jesus Christ of Nazareth. God the Father is a spirit, and the Bible says God has a spirit. Christ the Son is now once again at the right hand of God the Father and is a spirit being, and he has a spirit. Question. Does the Holy Spirit have a spirit? Doesn't that sound stupid when you stop to think about it? But it's a logical question, isn't it? if the Holy Spirit is a person. But the Word of God does not say that the Holy Spirit is a person. We can give you all kinds of scriptures about the Spirit of Christ. It said where Psalm 51 and the prayer of David at the time of the sin with Bathsheba was praying to God for forgiveness and said, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. We read of how Christ is dwelling in our hearts through faith. Let Christ be in us, the hope of glory. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Your life is hid with God in Christ, etc. We read about the prophets of old, whom the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify thus and such. So we read of the Holy Spirit as being a spirit, 
We read of God as being a spirit. We read of Jesus Christ as once again being assumed into heaven to be a spirit being at the right hand of God the Father. But we never see the Holy Spirit depicted as a person, nor do we see a trinity or a triumvirate or a tripartite government anywhere in all of creation. These bulbs are flowing with energy. They are coming from a source that is created by nothing more elaborate than friction. Somewhere there are hydroelectric projects. They either are huge steam generators burning coal or oil, causing them to whir and to create steam under pressure, which turns the turbines, which causes friction, which produces electricity. And the electricity is flowing. It is flowing rapidly through these bulbs and returning right back where it came from. It is not ending here and stopping and being lost. It is returning back where it came from. It is flowing. If electricity had been invented at the time the Bible writers were trying to talk about what they had heard and seen, probably electricity would have been used. Maybe nuclear energy would have been used. But instead they used water, wind and air, and fire. They did not use modern analogies. Almighty God exists in a completely different dimension, a spirit world. And Almighty God is capable of revealing himself to us in a physical world. And what does he reveal? By looking about you in all of nature, in all of creation. How many poles are there on the earth? Two. What does it take to make a magnet? Positive and negative. What are the colors of the posts on your battery? Black and red. Positive and negative. How many sexes does it take to produce a new life? Two. How many nostrils? Two. Two eyes. Two hands. Two arms. Two legs. Two ears. Two sexes. Two poles. Two testaments. God the Father and Christ the Son. Everywhere throughout God's creation. Male and female. Two, duality. The first man, Adam, and the second man, Adam, which is heaven, which is from heaven, which is Jesus Christ. The prototype and the final finished product. The previous typical fulfillment of prophecy and the final literal fulfillment of prophecy. Where do you find triumvirates? Where do you find three in God's Word? Michael. Gabriel and Lucifer. The only place. There are twelve of the great, exalted, wise beings at the right and the left hand of God that flank his throne. Who are merely called great spiritual elders of some kind. And apparently exist at a level even above that of archangels. There are innumerable angels at lower level. There are many cherubim and seraphim. But we only read of the names of three archangels. The third one of those three archangels rebelled against God, tried to overthrow God, and was cast down to this earth, and knows that he, according to the prophecy in Jude, is going to eventually be like a wandering star to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness for all eternity. Satan, the devil, is going to live together with his memories and his demons, for all eternity, time without end, in the blackest black hole of the universe where he does not even see a pinprick of light. You cannot imagine worse punishment 
than being alone forever and ever and ever with nothing but the knowledge of your own rotten, rebellious, filthy, despicable sin. Because Satan the devil knows that he's going to live forever, he's got human beings believing they, in whichever state, are going to live forever. Because Satan knows he's going to suffer seeing all of his works burned up in fire and is then going to live for all eternity in the blackness of Stygian darkness forever, he's got human beings convinced they're going to live forever burning in hellfire. Because he is part of a triumvirate, a triune system of beings, he's got human beings believing that God is three beings in one. That is not God's truth. It is not God's doctrine. It is the doctrine of Satan the devil. Chapter 8 of the book of Romans, if we can lead a horse to water, maybe we can sometime make him drink, but probably not. Most people will read this. I preach this sermon, this brief little passage to a group of people, Sunday-keeping people down where I live. They never invited me back. It is very, very clear. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Verse 9, If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, the Spirit of God. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. We've gone through that and we've proved that Almighty God's Spirit is His life, His power, His mind, His energy. It is His begetting power. It's His nature. It is, it, it's the extension of His personality and His character. What was I given? Please let me intrude into an area of your mind and then just leave it with you without elaborating on it for about another 20 minutes. What was I given, me, standing here, Garner Ted Armstrong, at the split instant way back 64 years and some months ago when a little tiny microscopic spermatozoon from the loins of my dad, Herbert W. Armstrong, attached itself to an egg in the womb of my wonderful, lovely mother, Loma Dillon Armstrong. What was I given? I was given life. I was given, given my father's nature. I was given my father's visage. What are you? You're the son and the daughter of your father and your mother. Don't ever believe anybody who tells you you cannot be begotten of God. And when you're begotten of God and a child of God, you're God's child. And what is the family to whom you belong? God's family. What a beautiful truth. And the Jews tried to kill Jesus Christ because he said God was his father, thus making himself equal with God. They tried to kill him. And the worldwide church is backing away from the greatest truth that could be revealed to the human mind, that we can be born of our spiritual father and become like he is. We can become a member of God's family. Here's what it says. Verse 15. You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of sonship, whereby we cry, Abba, which is an untranslated Aramaic that means Father. Abba, the Hebrew word for Father. Christ says, pray to your Father, because He is your Father, because He has begat you. And the new creature in Christ that is dwelling in your brain is a new being that has never been before, just as surely as the moment when you were begotten in the womb of your mother, you were a new being, a new creature that had never been before. And there is to be a new spiritual creation. The Spirit itself, the Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are God's kids. 
were the kids, the children, the kind of God. Kindred, kindred, children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. What did he inherit? He said, I've inherited all things. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He inherited eternity. He inherited the kingdom of God, the power of God, the family of God, the name of God. And if we are to inherit the same thing, at what level will we be? Will we be? We're not going to be God's pets. We're not going to be His playthings. We're not going to be disembodied souls floating around like so many little smelt in the Columbia River. We're not going to be little wraiths floating around or kind of disembodied something or other sitting around in front of a harp shuffling through music. We're going to be members of the family of God. We're going to be given a commission to go out into the universe where there are billions of planets. And we're going to begin anew because creation is not complete. It's only begun. God says in the last of Revelation, the 22nd chapter, at the time when God the Father Himself will come down to this earth at the end of the great white throne judgment, Behold, I create all things new. That is the true beginning. And it's over 1,100 years yet before the beginning. Time is opening up in front of you, not closing in. Time is not foreboding. Time is not frightening. Events are not threatening. Who can threaten you who are a child of God? What can I say? If God be for me, though every man be against me, if my life is hid with Christ in God, if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together made members of the family of God. Thank God for His truth that we have clung to it, that we tremble in front of God's Word, that we will not compromise with it, we will not go back on it, we will not get rid of our poignancy, our uniqueness, our cutting edge, or the truth of God in order to blend in to mainstream, fundamental churchianity so we can avoid persecution. This annual Holy Day that is commemorative of the time when God's Holy Spirit was first made available to all of mankind, is a red-letter day, a very important day in the mind of our Divine Father in heaven above. The day of the 50th Pentecost, called originally the day of weeks or first fruits. And you are a part of the first fruits of the salvation of this earth. If you are a child of God, if you've repented of your sins and been baptized and received God's Holy Spirit, which is making you a partaker of the divine nature. God's power, God's nature, God's character, God's mind, God's personality. My father begat me, and between my mother and my father made me what I am. What will you and what will I be when our divine father catches us to be with Jesus Christ in the clouds upon his return? And we stand there, and we look all of a sudden, and we can see through our hands. And we're shining with an ethereal, translucent glow. And we say, well, look, I've made it. I'm in God's kingdom. I've got a new body. It's real. I'm here. And we'll say, hi, Mom. And, hi, Dad. And I'll say, hi, Dick. 
How many members of my family I haven't seen? So will you. Thank God for that.